You good, T-Minus? Welcome back to the 40-Minute Podcast. I hope everyone had a great week with a lot of interesting sporting news. As well as the sporting news, we saw quite possibly one of the greatest upsets in TV show history on Sunday in the show of Game of Thrones. Now, I'm not going to spoil this for anyone who has not seen this episode or caught up to this point, but it was awesome. Anyways, like I said, this is the 40-Minute Podcast. This is the third episode, and without any longer, I am going to begin. Discussion number one, NBA playoffs. So right now we're in the full swing of things right now in the NBA playoffs. We are in the conference semifinals, in the Western Conference Final, and the Eastern Conference Final. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm kind of just going to go through the matchups right now. Kind of what I've observed from the game so far and some mismatches that I see in other perspectives of the matchups. So the first matchup that I'm going to go to is, in the Eastern Conference, the Celtics and the Bucks. Right now, the Celtics are winning the series 1-0. Game 2 is tonight on a Tuesday night. Now, I am recording this on a Tuesday night and releasing it on a Wednesday night, so we'll see what happens with the game tonight. But anyways, from Game 1, something that I saw was that the Bucks may be in trouble here. I know it is just one game, and you really can't overreact to one game, but how the Celtics played the Bucks in that game and how they pay- played Giannis is an adjustment that the Bucks really need to make. So one of the things that I was able to notice was every time Giannis went to the rim, posted up, came off of screens, He was instantly doubled once he got into the painted area, sometimes even tripled. It looked as if it was kind of like a zone look from the Celtics, but it actually wasn't. So with this happening, I think players like Bledsoe and Brooke Lopez have to play a lot better. Bledsoe in the first game there only had six points. Brooke Lopez only three points. Those two guys are going to be real key for the Bucs in this series. If the Celtics are going to play Giannis that way, they're kind of limiting Giannis in a way that he can't go off and explode against them, which I think is smart. I think that's how you're going to beat the Bucs in the playoffs because they are a talented team. And those two guys right there, Bledsoe and Brooke Lopez, are really going to have to have big games for them in order to win games in this series and to even win this series at all. Chris Middleton had a really nice first half in the first game. In the second half, he was kind of shut down as well. And besides those two guys, no one else really on the Bucks had any sort of idea what to do. I know Miritich had a decent game. I think he had around 10 points. But those guys, Brooke Lopez... Eric Bledsoe, Sterling Brown got hurt in that game too. Those those guys, those other starters, they they have to score the ball in order for the Bucks to win a couple games in this series. With the Celtics here, the Celtics had really uh, balanced scoring from a couple guys, Rozier, Gordon Hayward, Kyrie, Jalen Brown, Al Horford. Jalen Brown has been tremendous so far five games throughout the playoffs with Marcus Smart being sidelined. He's been very, very good for them. He was also good last year in the playoffs, so this really isn't too surprising. But with the Celtics here, the difference between the Celtics and the Bucks here is the, is the Celtics really don't need Kyrie Irving to go off in order to win games in this series. I mean, the first game he had 26-11, and 11, which is a really nice game. But they don't really need him to go off because of their top seven guys in the rotation. They can all score. Rozier, Gordon Hayward, Kyrie, Jalen Brown, Marcus Morris, Jason Tatum, Al Horford. All of those guys can score. They really don't have a deficiency on the offensive end. 
So that kind of helps the Celtics in the series. And right now, if you're comparing the top seven on each team, the Celtics do have a better seven. I thought originally when this series started that the Bucks would win this series just because they have Giannis and because of the shooters that surround him. I think they would make enough plays. We'll see going in here to game two tonight, but that's kind of the thing that I observed from game one. The Like I said, the real, real big guys that need to step up for this team are Brooke Lopez and, and Eric Bledsoe, especially if, after Eric Bledsoe had one of his best seasons so far in the NBA, shooting percentage-wise, assist-wise. So he's really going to have to come out and have a good game two tonight for the Bucks in order to pretty much save their season. Because I think if the Bucks go down 2-0 tonight, that's really going to be it for them. I think the Celtics going back home, I think the Celtics are going to at least take one out of two if they were up 2-0 in the series. Then they would ultimately go up 3-1, and I think it's over from there. So this is a big game for the Bucks tonight. I think it really is a must-win for them. I look for Giannis to come out really aggressive, and I look for Bledsoe to come out really aggressive as well. And Brooke Lopez as well. That's another guy, Chris Middleton as well. The Bucks got to get something going here tonight on their home floor. Next matchup that I want to get into is the other Eastern Conference um, semifinal matchup between the Sixers and the Raptors. Last night was game two. The Sixers did end up winning last night's game by five. The Raptors, uh, their bench, I'm not really sure what's going on with their bench. Their bench has been has been bad the first two games of the series. They've been outplayed by the Sixers bench, and the Raptors bench this year was the middle of the, was middle of the pack in the NBA in scoring. They were really really good as a defensive unit as well, their second unit. But right now, I'm not really sure what's going on with Fred VanVleet, Serge Ibaka, Norman Powell. They have not played well through two games in the series. It is 1-1. I still think the Raptors do end up winning this series just because they have Kawhi Leonard and and Pascal Siakam has play, been playing out of his mind as well. I think that is going to help them along down the stretch during this series as well. Siakam with the matchup with Tobias Harris. I think Siakam has has outplayed uh, Tobias Harris. And Tobias Harris is going into his, his contract year here. His contract year is expiring. He's going to be a free agent this summer. I don't know if this is really the best look for Harris. I don't know if, if he really fits well with Philly and, and what they want to do there, but Siakam is outplaying him in the series. Siakam has had two good games. Last night, I know his shooting percentage wasn't the best. He still managed to score over 20. Siakam has really developed into a really, really nice player for the Raptors. He's helped them a lot. Besides Siakam and Kawhi Leonard, though, the Raptors have to get some scoring elsewhere. I know Kyle Lowry had a pretty good game last night, but Marcus Saul, Danny Green, like I said, with Fred Van Vliet and their bench guys, these guys got to help Kawhi and Siakam or else I don't really know if they can win this series. I expected those two to help them, and I still think that the other role players on this team will help them as the series progresses into game three and four in Philly. That's something that you really got to look for right now. And last night for the Sixers, James Ennis coming off the bench last night, he had, I think, 12, 13. I mean, that's not a big number, but when you're comparing them to what the Raptors did off of the bench, that's huge for the Sixers, just getting any sort of production, especially from from James Ennis. I know he had a couple threes last night. He played pretty good defense, so that's big. And Embiid did not have a good game as well last night, so that's a plus that the Sixers did end up winning that game with Embiid not even having a good game. Ben Simmons is kind of struggling in this series. He has not very played well. This, the, the Raptors are kind of doing what the Celtics did last year against them. They're kind of sagging off of him, forcing him to shoot jump shots and making him a half-court player, not letting him run in transition, which is really the way to, to limit Ben Simmons and, and all of his capabilities that he has when getting out on the open floor. You know, um, 
Jimmy Butler last night, I think, proved a lot of people wrong that are saying that he is still not that all-star type of player. Jimmy Butler was absolutely fantastic in the fourth quarter last night. I think he had like 14 in the fourth. He ended up with 30-11-5. He had a really, really nice game. He's the one that pretty much propelled them to win that game. He willed them in that fourth quarter to win that game. So I think any any questions about Jimmy Butler still not being that all-star caliber player can be squashed after what you saw last night. He's still very, very productive. This series, though, I really think this series is going to come down to the benches for these two teams and the other guys helping the stars. Like I said with the Raptors, they got to get some guys to help Siakam and Kawhi. Those two guys in both games so far in this series have scored over 50 points, both of them combined. They need other guys to help them. The Raptors last night, I think with the Raptors last night, if they didn't play so poorly in the first half, they would have ended up winning that game. I know they had a nice comeback in the fourth there, but if they didn't shoot the ball so poorly in the the first half and they shot like 30% in the first half total they would end up winning that game and I think they would have ended up winning that game pretty pretty handily so that's kind of why I am sticking with the Raptors to win, still win this series and I think they'll get some help from the other guys there Marcus All, Kyle Lowry, Norman Powell those guys will end up helping Kawhi and Siakam as a series progresses here now we go to the Western Conference the Warriors and the Rockets the Warriors did end up winning game one there Durant had 35 in that game the Warriors are obviously the best team in the NBA. They're realistically going to win another championship again. The Rockets had the Rockets did not even play well, and they ended up losing by four. They only shot 42% from the field. They didn't shoot well from three. Harden didn't shoot well at all during the game. Capella actually had an awful game. I was kind of I kind of upset to see that because Capella had such a good year this season, one of his 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 best season in the NBA. They really need Capella to be active. They need him to block shots. They need him to have good rim runs, rim runs so he can catch those lobs at the rim. They need him to be really, really productive on the glass. He just was not that in the game one. He was in foul trouble a lot. I know that was quite of the big thing there. He was held under 30 minutes. So I look for him tonight in game two to have a much better game. And another guy, too, that Rockets that needs to help Harden and Chris Paul out and Eric Gordon is P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker in that first round against Utah was hitting corner three after corner three after corner three. He's got to make some shots. In, in that game one there, he didn't score at all. He missed all of his threes that he took. He's got to hit some threes there. They got to get him some open threes. I think that'll help him. Another thing that I really, really think the Rockets need to do, and I know they only did this for a little while during game one, but they need to do this the whole entire game. They need to keep P.J. Tucker on the floor at all times when Kevin Durant's on the floor because there was times where Daniel House was on Kevin Durant. That That's just not going to work out. Daniel House, I like him. I think he's a, a decent role player in the league. He had a good, really good season shooting the ball from three. Against Kevin Durant, that's just no matchup there. Durant's going to get his any single time against Daniel House. So I really, really think D'Antoni needs to make an adjustment here to keep P.J. Tucker in the game at all times to guard Kevin Durant. Because even if it's a two, three-minute stretch, Durant could go off for six, eight points just like that in a blink of an eye. So with that, the Rockets need to make some adjustments here. I think the Rockets can test them just because of their three-point shooting ability and Harden can have these explosion games. The Warriors will still end up winning the series. They're just too talented. They had balanced scoring in game one. Curry didn't even really have a good game. Iguodala had a pretty good game in game in game one. He always seems to be very good in the playoffs. I just don't know why. I'm not sure even still how he's still good, but he still is. The Warriors are just too talented. 
Really hope the Rockets can make something out of this in Game 2 tonight, but we'll see what happens. Now, the other matchup in the Western Conference Finals is my favorite matchup throughout the whole entire playoffs as of right now is the Blazers and the Nuggets. I really, really like this matchup, and I like the Nuggets to win this series. They took care of business last night. They ended up winning 121-113. to 113. I think the real big thing in this series and why I like the Nuggets to win this series is because Jokic and Millsap have a big advantage against the other bigs of Portland. Now, Jokic is going to be ma- Jokic is matched up with Kanter. Kanter did end up having a good game last night, but Jokic absolutely teared him apart on the offensive end. Jokic got a basket whenever he wanted. Millsap, he, Millsap had, had a good game as well. Jokic and Millsap combined for over 55 points. Millsap is just, he is too physical, and he is too good of a low post scorer against Al-Faruq Aminu. Alfaruk Amino is not the best post defender. He is a good perimeter defender. That is what he's known for. Him playing the four against Millsap, I think that's a big advantage for the Nuggets. I think anytime they go into the post with Millsap, I think he can get a basket on him. Even if he catches the ball on the elbow, he can get to the rim on him. That's a big advantage for the Nuggets, their front court. And I think with this series, with the Nuggets, I think this series is much more suited for the Nuggets because in that first round series against the Spurs, the Spurs really wanted to just slow the pace down. They wanted to keep the games in the. They wanted to keep the game in the nineties, low hundreds, because that's the, that's the Spurs' best chance to win. Just because of their the roster that they have, they don't really have that many capable scores. But against the Blazers, this is more of the Nuggets suited style. They want to get up and down the floor, and the Blazers are the same exact way. The Blazers want to get up and down the floor as well. So this series, I think, suits the Nuggets even better than it than they were off against. The Spurs there, just because of the two styles, they're much similar. I don't think the Nuggets really have to focus much on controlling the tempo because the tempo in each of these games is going to be up and down. So that favors the Nuggets as well. Now with the Blazers there, Damian Lillard had another really, really good game. He's been out of control in this playoffs. He's been playing at an elite level. CJ McCollum had a pretty good game. Those two guys, they're going to get theirs every single game. Those two guys have, I think, established themselves as the second best backcourt in the league behind stuff and behind stuff and Clay. They've been really, really good. But for the Blazers, for them to win this series, they're going to need some big production out of Al Farouk Aminu and Mo Harkless. Like I said with Aminu, I think he is not in a good matchup in this series against Paul Millsap. I think Paul Millsap can get his whenever he wants in the elbow the elbow t- t- towards the rim area from that range there, that 12 to 15 foot range. I think Paul Millsap can get a basket whenever he wants if the Nuggets really need one just because of the advantage that he has. But Alfa Rucamino, he's got to score on the offensive end. And same with Mo Harkless. Mo Harkless, he had a pretty good series against the Thunder. He's got to play much better. He, two points last night, Alfa Rucamino, two points. Their wings, they need to play much better in this series in order to give the Blazers a chance to win. And I don't think I don't think last night because like I I don't think game one can ever cement a series. But I think last night had to, to say a lot about what's going to happen in this series. That the Nuggets are going to go through their big guys in order to score points when they need them, and the Blazers are going to go through their guards. I don't know. That's pretty much common sense. But after watching the game last night, that is what's going to happen in this series. And for the Blazers, they really really need their wings to step up in order to win games and potentially even win this series. I know the Blazers were the hot pick coming in just because of Damian Lillard, but they're going to need production from those two guys, I think, mainly in order to win this series. I think the Blazers' bench last night played pretty well. 
they did play pretty well. The Nuggets bench played pretty well as well. They're, the Nuggets bench, when they play at home, and I feel like this this is the case with a lot of with a lot of NBA teams, especially playoff teams. When the Nuggets bench, when they play at home, like Will Barton, Malik Beasley, those guys, they play much better at home because they feed off of the crowd's energy. And I think that's really important. I think if the Nuggets go up 2-0 in this series, I think this is over as well. I don't think the Blazers can – I don't know if the Blazers can steal a game in Denver if they do go down 2-0. So that that you know that's a big thing here as well. Game two is really really important for Portland, and I think that Dame's gonna have Damian Lillard's gonna have to have another big game in order for this team to win. And the Nuggets, like I said, I think this this series really favors them just because of the tempo. Portland really matches what they want to do, so they don't have to play contrasting styles here. The big men, they have big man advantage. They can go to the post whenever they want to get baskets. So that's really really a big key in this series for me. Discussion number two, NFL Draft. Okay, so in this next segment here, I'm going to be talking about the NFL Draft. Some things that I saw, the team that I think won the draft, the biggest steal of the draft, and some other miscellaneous teams that I want to discuss. So I'm going to start off with the team who I think won the draft. I think the Washington Redskins did very, very well in this draft. Last week in my podcast, I said that the Redskins really needed to draft a quarterback. They did draft a quarterback. They ended up getting Dwayne Haskins, who I thought would not fall to them, but he did. So that was very good for the Redskins. I mentioned him in the last podcast as well, possibly going to the Redskins, them trading up for him. But they did get him, which is very, very good. Now with Haskins, he was really good last year at Iowa State. He threw over 15 touchdown passes. He's a really, really good pocket passer, and I think he's going to be really motivated by the Giants not selecting him. He wanted to play for the Giants. They didn't end up picking him. They ended up taking Daniel Jones. I think that was a mistake, but we'll see what happens. I think because of his ability to get the ball out of his hands quickly, like he did at Ohio State's in Ohio State's offense, that's going to help him at the next level. Even though I know that Ohio State ran a ton of drag routes, a ton of underneath routes, so I think that's why people say you know he had all those touchdowns and all those passing yards. But I think that him getting the ball out quickly was definitely a thing that did matter, and I think that's going to help him at the next level. His numbers against ranked team last year, against ranked teams last year, was amazing. Honestly, he went six and zero against ranked teams. He had twenty six touchdown passes in those six games, and also a comp- completion percentage of over seventy percent in those games, which is very good. That shows you that he's a big time player in the big time games. That's a guy that I want to lead my franchise in the right direction, especially as a franchise quarterback. The Redskins also traded up to draft Montez Sweat. And at the end of the first round, I thought that was an awesome decision by the Redskins. He was seen as the best pass rusher in a lot of people's eyes, but he fell in the draft because of his off-the-field issues. I know a few years back he was kicked out of Michigan State, and then he enrolled into Mississippi State. He still had some off-the-field issues, but he's a very, very, very good player. A lot of people saw him as the best pass rusher in the draft, as I mentioned. He's going to have a good a good chance to be successful early in his NFL career because he's going to be playing alongside Deron Payne and Jonathan Allen, who were also first-round picks in the last two seasons from the Redskins. So their defensive line has a chance to be very good with a bunch of young bunch of young players in their nucleus. So that was also another good pick and a good decision for them to trade back into the first round. They also drafted Terry McLaurin from Ohio State as well. 
that was one of Dwayne Haskins' favorite targets at Ohio State. That was his favorite deep ball target. He averaged 20 yards a catch at Ohio State. He was one of Haskins' favorite red zone targets as he had 11 touchdowns last year. He's got good size at six foot, 200 pounds to compete at a wide receiver three or a wide receiver two position in the NFL. Getting him, like I said, was nice for Haskins because he already has that, that comfort with Haskins. He already has that chemistry with Haskins. So that can definitely help Haskins' development down the road. And he has a security blanket if needed in Terry. He also had really, really good speed at the combine. He ran a four, three, like I said, his deep ball ability to get down the field vertical definitely helped him, and I think that's going to help Haskins as well. The pick makes sense for the Redskins. They lack a big play receiver besides Paul Richardson in their offense. No one else on their team can really stretch the field. So I think it makes a lot of sense for them to get Terry because, like I said, with all the comfort that he has with Haskins and his big playability. They also drafted Bryce Love, who is a really, really explosive player. He did get hurt at Stanford multiple times, which is a concern. But I think at the at the place that they got Bryce Love, I think that was a great pick for them. He's an explosive player who doesn't need to play often, but when he does, he has an ability to hit home runs. He's going to be behind Darius Geis, Adrian Peterson, and Chris Thompson this year. Those are the three backs ahead of him. So I don't know how much he's actually going to play, but one thing to look out for with him is if he gets a chance to be a possible kick returner for the Redskins, that could open up and everyone could see his big playability. He returned a few kicks at Stanford the last two seasons for them. I think around 10 kick returns each. He averaged around a 21 to 22 return uh, kick return average. So that's pretty good. So if he has a chance to win the return job for the Redskins, I think that would be able to help and that would be able to show his big playability. The Redskins also drafted Kelvin Harmon in the sixth round of the draft. He's an NC State receiver who posted back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. He was an all-ACC team player. He is he's a, he's a possession receiver. He's a big receiver at 6'2". He's not a speedy guy, but that is another nice pick as well. Now, he was a sixth-round pick, so he's going to be down in the wide receiver depth chart. Hopefully, he makes the roster. If he does get a chance to make the roster, I think he's another guy that can help Haskins as well. Now, that was the team that I think won the draft. Now, I'm going to go to the biggest steal of the draft. I think the biggest steal of the draft for where they got him was DeAndre Baker from Georgia by the Giants at number 30 in the draft. First, I'm going to start off by saying the Giants didn't have a number two corner at the time that they drafted Baker, so I think this this pick makes a lot of sense. And the Giants' number one corner right now is Janoris Jenkins. Last year, he was he was not good. Last year, the the season before that, he was he was good. Last year, he was not good at all. He is scheduled to count for 11 million against the cap next season. But if he shows any signs of what he did this past season, which I said was not very good, he could easily be cut. So I think this this pick makes a lot of sense for the Giants. If they do end up cutting him and he posts another bad season, Baker could potentially step in and be a number one corner for them. Number two corner this year, definitely. So I think that's good for them. He won the best college football cornerback award or the best corner of the year 
in college football this season, excuse me. He was matched up with every big-time receiver in the SEC this year, A.J. Brown, Jerry Judy from Alabama, Debo Samuel. Now, A.J. Brown and Debo Samuel were also um, second-round picks in the NFL draft. So those guys right there, I mean, he was matched up against all big-time receivers, so that that is something to definitely look out for. In the last two seasons, I found a really nice stat on DeAndre Baker. In the last two seasons, when the ball was attempted his way, he only allowed a passer rating of 35% against him, which was top three in the country. That is that is very, very good. He's a good corner in man-to-man coverage. The Giants will probably play a lot of man-to-man coverage with him there. The longest catch that he gave up last season was only 17 yards, so he doesn't get be- get beat deep. He keeps everything in front of him, which is nice to have as a corner. You don't want to have corners that get beat over the top. He's a very good tackler, and he finds the ball. He's always going to the ball when it is thrown, when the ball is ran. So that's definitely a plus when you're going to select a corner in the first round. He was drafted at the end of the first round, I think, because of his speed. I know at the combine he was one of the lower speed guys that were projected to be first round picks in the group with him and Greedy Williams and Byron Murphy there. He doesn't have the best speed, which can be a little bit scary if he's guarding smaller guys at the NFL level. But ultimately, for where he was picked... I think that is a good pick for the Giants. I think he's going to end up being a very good player at the next level because of his ability to be physical at the line of scrimmage, to find the ball in the air. It's a really good pick by the Giants, and I think he's going to end up being the steal of the draft for the Giants at where they got him for at the number 30 pick. Now, some other things that I kind of want to talk about, some miscellaneous things from the draft that happened that I liked. I am a Rams fan, so I'm going to throw something that the Rams did in the NFL draft. I like that their pick of Taylor Rapp with their first pick in the draft, which ended up coming after they traded back two or three times in the draft. He's a really, really good tackler, and he sets the tone on the defensive side of the field as a safety He got better each year at Washington, and just like with DeAndre Baker, he has an ability to find the ball, which is big, very big. He was second-team All-America this season in a very good Washington defense, and I think this pick makes a lot of sense, especially because I know the Rams just signed Eric Weddle this offseason, but once Weddle retires, I think this is his and John Johnson's defense to kind of take over. They could be a really, really nice tandem in years to come in the back end for the Rams. And I think Taylor Rapp has also a chance to move to the linebacker position, just like the Rams did with Mark Barron these last couple years when Mark Barron converted from a safety to a linebacker. I think Taylor Rapp could end up doing the same exact thing that happened with, with Mark Barron. Would not shock me at all if they did move him to a linebacker position. Now, moving on, I think that the Bills did the Bill the Bills did pretty well in this draft. I think too. I love that they got Ed Oliver at the number nine selection. I thought this was one of the best picks in the whole entire draft for getting him at nine. I think it was a huge win for the Bills because they didn't have to trade up for him. He's got a chance to be the best player in the draft. He's got a really good motor, and he's been compared to Aaron Donald coming out of Houston. He, he's he got really, really good power and speed as a defensive tackle, which can make you a force as we've seen with Aaron Donald and Fletcher Cox and other guys in this league like Gio, G, Gino Atkins as well from Cincinnati. So th- that's going to help him as well. I also like the, the Bills picks of Cody Ford, Devin Singletary, and Jaquan Johnson in the sixth round for Miami. 
I think that Cody Ford has an ability to stabilize their offensive line. The Bills' offensive line needs some work there. He was a first-team All-Big 12 selection, so that I thought was a nice pick for the Bills. I think Devin Singletary was one of the running backs in this draft that we don't really know if he could be a bust or if he could be a really, really good player. I think he's going to be a good player in the league because of what he showed at Florida Atlantic. He's got a workhorse type of mentality. He got the ball a ton at Florida Atlantic the last two seasons and even a good amount as in his freshman season. He is small. He's somewhere around that 5'8 range, but I think Singletary could be like a LaShawn McCoy or Alvin Kamara type of back for Buffalo. Now with Kamara, he doesn't catch as well as Kamara, but just talking from the running the running purposes here, he's someone, um, talking about Singletary, he's someone who doesn't really look strong just by looking at him, but once you see him and once you see him shut off tacklers, you can see that he's secretly strong and he's very hard to tackle. He's elusive, which makes him kind of like that, that LaShawn McCoy and Alvin Kamara type of back. He posted three straight 1,000-yard seasons at Florida Atlantic, and he also had over 50 touchdowns the last two seasons, so he gets into the end zone, which is really a nice thing as well. Now, the sixth pick that they got from Miami, Jaquan Johnson. I know Jaquan Johnson very well because I am a Miami Hurricanes fan as well. He was a safety for Miami, and like I said, he was a six-round pick, which I thought was a nice pick for the Bills there. He's a safety who finds the ball. He is not afraid to tackle as well. He also had 11 takeaways the last two seasons at Miami. He got hurt a little bit last season, so that kind of that I think that kind of affected where he fell in this draft here. He was an all-ACC second-team player last year, even getting hurt a couple of games there. In the year before that, when he did play the whole entire season, he was an All-American player. Discussion number three, NFL win totals. So the Vegas casinos released the NFL win totals coming up for this 2019 season. And there were a couple that stood out to me, two in particular that I really liked. I liked the over on the Steelers win total, which is set at eight and a half right now. And the Eagles win total, which is set at nine and a half. I like both overs in that. And I'm going to explain why. First with the Steelers, I know a lot of people are probably saying, how do you think they're going to win nine games this year after losing Antonio Brown and after losing Le'Veon Bell? The big thing with the Steelers here is they still have one of the best offensive lines in the league. They still have Ben Roethlisberger. They have a more than capable back as he's shown last year with James Conner. And they even added to the running back core by getting Benny Snell from Kentucky. I thought that was an awesome pick for them. And they still have one of the best defensive lines in the league. In the regular season in the NFL, if you have a good offensive line and if you have a good defensive line, I think that automatically right there translates you to a 500 team automatically. Just just with that, if you have the big boys on both sides of the trenches – that automatically is going to get you to an 8-8 eight and eight team. Those are the two most important parts, obviously, besides a quarterback in the National Football League, and the Steelers have both, so I think that helps them. The Steelers also were able to acquire Dante Moncrief as kind of a small uh, consolation prize once they, lo- once they obviously lost Antonio Brown. Dante Moncrief is able to show that he can post pretty good numbers like he did with Andrew Luck, so I thought that was a sneaky good pickup for the Steelers, and hopefully he can come back to life with Big Ben. Another thing with the Steelers that I like is I like that they drafted Zach Gentry in this draft. He's a tight end from Michigan. He can block. He can catch. The Steelers like two tight end sets like they ran last year and the year before with Vance McDonald and Jesse James. Zach Gentry is going to be able to fill that role with Vance with Vance McDonald. 
I think O'Reilly do a real nice job in that role as kind of the Jesse James role for the Steelers. As I said, as I mentioned with the defensive line, they have a very good defensive line according to Sacks last season. I think the addition of Devin Bush is going to be the heart and soul of their defense. He was a leader on the defensive side of the ball with Chase Winovich at Michigan. Mark Barron, I think maybe a change of scenery going to the Steelers would definitely help him. As I know, last season with the Rams, he wasn't too good. But I think he could be a pretty decent pickup as well for the Steelers. Another thing with the Steelers as well, the last five seasons, I know that they had Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, obviously. Last four seasons, I'm sorry. They eclipsed that that nine-win mark. Okay, So the last four seasons, the Steelers have won at least nine games. That that right there tells to me that the, the Steelers, if you watch football, you know that they are a winning organization. They know how to win. As long as they have Big Ben, as long as they have a good defensive line and a good offensive line, I think that gets them to the nine-win mark. And looking at their schedule here, I, I know they begin the season with the Steelers or the Patriots. I know that's a tough game. They'll probably drop that game. But then I'm kind of looking in the back ha- half of their season here. The last seven games that the Steelers play, they play against one playoff team. They play Baltimore at Baltimore the last game of the season. That is the last seven games. That is the one playoff team in the last seven games that they play. Now, they play Cleveland twice in the in the back end of their schedule. I think they split with Cleveland. They're beating, they're beating Cincinnati twice. So right there alone is going to get them to three wins. They're beating Arizona, that gets them to four wins. They're beating Buffalo, that gets them to five wins. They're beating the Jets, that gets them to six wins. They're going to split with Baltimore, that gets them to seven wins right there. And when you look at the rest of their schedule here, with seven wins, these are kind of the the other games to kind of nitpick at who they can beat. They play Miami, that's a win. That's going to get them to eight wins right there. And then the other games that they have left remaining on their schedule, Seattle, San Francisco, the Chargers, Colts and Rams. I think out of those one, two, three, four, five games, I think out of those five games, I think the Steelers win one of those games to get them to the nine win total mark. I think the Steelers have a realistic chance based off of their schedule to get to at least nine or 10 wins, especially like I mentioned with their back half of their schedule being against one playoff team, potentially two this season with the Browns. Yes, I know the Browns added a bunch of good players, but they're still not a winning culture. And I still believe that the Steelers will split with the Browns. I think the Steelers definitely get to that eight and a half mark and get over right to that nine mark. Now, the other team that I did want to talk about as well is the Philadelphia Eagles. They their win total is set at nine and a half wins. I think that the I think that the Eagles get at least ten wins. Looking at their schedule here and their depth chart, first off, I like what the Eagles did this offseason when they kind of fixed their running back situation. I think at least. You got Jordan Howard from Chicago for basically nothing. That was a nice pickup for them. Jordan Howard, I think, is a more than capable back. I think Tariq Cohen was starting to gain more grasp on that starting role in Chicago, and I think that's why Chicago parted ways with him. I think Jordan Howard can be a good back for them. And for even more insurance, they drafted Miles Sanders from Penn State. He was able to show really nice flashes at Penn State. He's a good back. He's a really, really strong back. So that's a nice insurance for Jordan Howard, and obviously they still have Corey Clement. Nice pass catching back, things like that. They, getting Deshaun Jackson can stretch the field for Alshon Jeffrey, I think, a little bit, which can help him. Or Sega Whiteside, when they drafted him from Stanford, he can definitely help in the red zone. And I think Carson Wentz is going to have a really, really good year this year. 
I think Carson Wentz is kind of sick and tired of hearing all of this stuff about Nick Foles, how the Eagles are better with Nick Foles. Well, now Nick Foles is gone. And now this is Carson Wentz's team. There is no other, who is it, Carson Wentz or Nick Foles debates. This is this is Carson Wentz's team. I think he has a really, really good year. I think it helps him that he gets two solid running backs. Uh, a rookie that hasn't played it down, but I think he's going to be a good back in, in the league just because of his ability to run and shut off tacklers. So I think that Wentz has a really, really nice bounce back year. I think he's motivated by all that talk. I think their defensive line is obviously still very, very good. They added Malik Jackson. Still have Derek Barnett, Fletcher Cox. The other one there, what's it? Oh, Brandon Graham. He's a good player too. Their secondary last year was hurt badly. Uh, They had a starting cornerback, I think, hurt. At least one of their starting quarterbacks hurt for a majority of the season. At least one of them. And then at the end of the year, it was kind of decimated, and they were starting all these different type of acquisitions that they acquired all all these guys that you haven't even heard of like Avante Maddox um what's his name over there Carvon LeBlanc the other kid there too Rasul Butler him too or Rasul Douglas I'm sorry those types of guys you haven't even heard of so I mean I think if their secondary can stay healthy with Mills Malcolm Jenkins Ronald Darby there I think their secondary can be pretty solid their linebacking core is probably the weakest point on their team, I think. Um, I think if their linebackers can just play average, I think that will definitely help their defense as well. And now looking at the Eagles schedule here, kind of like what happens with the Steelers' schedule, their back end of their schedule, the Eagles, this is where they play the last six games of the season. They play Seattle at home, Miami, the Giants twice, Washington, and Dallas. The last six games of the season, I think that the, that the Eagles are going to win all six. I think they're going to beat Seattle at home. I think they'll beat Miami. They're going to beat the Giants twice. I think they beat Washington, even though I'm, I like what Washington, the direction they're heading in. I don't think Washington is ready this season to take that leap. And then I think they beat Dallas. I think they split with Dallas during the regular season. So the last six games, I think they, the Eagles run the table there. And when you're looking up at the beginning of their season, I think they start out 2-2. Two and two. I think they beat the Redskins at home. I think they go on the road to Atlanta and they lose. Atlanta was kind of in the same situation as the Eagles last year. They had a bunch of different injuries. So I think Atlanta's going to be a solid team this year. And Atlanta gets to play at home against Philly, so I think they win that game. Eagles play at home against the Lions. They win that game, get some, get some two wins out of their first four. And then their, other, their fourth game and final game out of their first four, they play at Green Bay. I think that the Packers will be a little bit better this year. First month of the season, I think the Eagles do lose that game. So the first four games there, I have them going two and two. Their last six, I have them winning all six. And then kind of in their middle here, they get the Jets at home, the Vikings on the road, the Bills, the Cowboys, the Bears, and the and the Pats. I think with the Bears and the Pats, they play both at home. I think they split. I think they win one of those games. Would not shock me if they win both, but I think they win one of those games. So right there, going from the first four games and the last six games, that's nine wins right there. So when you kind of look in their middle of their schedule, play Minnesota, Buffalo, Dallas, and the Jets. I think they split those games as well. I think they lose the Minnesota, and I think they lose the Dallas. I think they beat Buffalo, and I think they beat the Jets. So right there in their first eight games, I think they go four and four. 
And then in their last eight games, I think they go six and two, which is going to get them right to about the 10 win mark. I think at the very worst, the Eagles go 10 and six. I like their roster a lot. I like what they've done when they've added the two running backs. I think that's going to help Wentz a lot. Like I said, I think Wentz will be really motivated, and I think he'll able he'll, he will be able to show that this was his team after all, even after he got hurt a few times in the last few, two seasons. Discussion number four, Tampa. So this week, Bleacher Report came out with an article that involves Kemba Walker and the Charlotte Hornets, and I thought it was really interesting, and that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk about it. I've talked about Kemba in my third first podcast about potentially joining the Lakers. So I thought it was interesting to read the article and kind of see where the Hornets are going with this Kemba Walker situation as free agency approaches this summer. And he is a free agent. Kemba Walker, I don't think that he's good enough. He's a good enough player to win an NBA title as the number one guy as he's shown that in Charlotte. But they also really haven't put much around him. I know in his young years there, he had Al Jefferson Last couple of years, he's kind of have Nicholas Batum. Um, they they really don't have much else. I mean, other guys that they've had on their roster, that they currently have on their roster, Miles Bridges, Malik Monk, Cody Zeller, Marvin Williams, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. These are kind of guys that have failed as high draft picks that are on the Hornets now. But anyways, the, the article, in the article, I, I found something to be very interesting. GMs have seen what's going on with the Hornets and they've described this issue as the Hornets are screwed either way because one they would be losing their franchise player or two they would be paying him a massive amount of money to be surrounded by a cast that that isn't even likely to get out of the first round or the second round assuming they don't add a big time free agent which couldn't even happen until the 2020-2021 season because of the salary issue the salary cap issues that they currently have the Hornets will clear about $45 million off the books next summer when Bismack Miabo, Marvin Williams, and Michael K. Gilchrist are off the books. But Kemba Walker is going to be 29 years old coming up here in a week. His, his birthday is May 8th. So, so he's going to be 29 coming up here. And by the time those guys are off the books, which will clear $45 million, like I said, he's going to be 30 years old. But that's not even the worst part here. But when he is 30 years old, when he turns 30 years old, and those guys are off the books, they still have Cody Zeller and Nicholas Batum on the books, plus him assuming he gets the max deal, which is going to eat up around $80 million in cap. That is almost two-thirds of the cap that's going to be eaten up by three players. Now, they could do a bunch of things with Batum here because Batum's set to make like $25 million his last year. They could stretch him and obviously save money that way and pay him over time. They could trade him if anyone's even going to take him back, but obviously they would likely have to give up a first-round pick, maybe next year's first-round pick. So there's some things they could do, but assuming they don't do anything, $80 million for just Batum, Cody Zeller, and Kemba, like I said, assuming he gets the max, that's almost two-thirds of your money there. And at that point in the 2020-2021 free agency class, right now there's really nobody in it, but obviously with the one-year deals that could be signed this summer, the best free agent in that class as of right now is Kyle Lowry, and he's old. So things really aren't looking too bright for the Hornets. The The development of Malik Monk and Miles Bridges, plus this year's lottery pick that they have, which I think is number 12, is going to have to save the Hornets and Kemba Walker if he even decides to stay there. In my opinion, after seeing what's happened 
with the Wizards now currently. They traded Otto Porter, which which helped them, but now they still have John Wall and Bradley Beal on the books. With the Wizards, I don't think it's going to work. It, it, actually, it is not going to work. I don't think. I know it's not going to work. John Wall's going to be out till 2020, so that's how I know it's not going to work. So they did a smart thing by trading Porter. Now the Wizards have to trade Beal or John Wall, most likely Beal. But anyways, back to Kemba Walker. I would let Kemba Walker walk if I was the Hornets because of the salary cap issues on this roster. It's just a bad situation for them. And I think they would be better off hitting the reset button with somebody else because Kemba won't even have a realistic chance to win anything until he turns 30 years old. And like I said, even when he turns 30, two-thirds of their salary are going to be committed to him, Cody Zeller, and Nicholas Batum. So that's that's just a rough situation for them. And now I can see why, after reading this article, GMs have said that they're screwed either way in what they do. But in my personal opinion, I would let him walk just because of what's going on with their roster and the salary cap issues that they have. Now, I think Kevin Walker is a great player. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think he's a good enough player as a number one to win a title. I think... As a number two option on a title contender, I think Kemba Walker would work, and I would love to see that happen, like I mentioned with the Lakers, if he were to play alongside somebody like LeBron or somebody like even a Kawhi Leonard with the Clippers. I think that's something that Kemba could do, and I think that's something that would be really beneficial to Kemba, and I could see him winning a ring even as a number two player on a really good team. That's all for this week's episode of 40 Minutes. Thank you for giving me 40 minutes of your time to listen to some hot takes that are happening in the sports world, and I will see you next Wednesday once again. Thank you.